When you hear the word compromise, what thought comes to your mind? The word itself is neutral, and thus it can be taken one of two ways. The word can be used with positive connotations, or it can be used with negative connotations. Let me explain. When we use the word compromise in a positive way, we are describing an agreement or a settlement that is reached between two differing viewpoints. That is a positive type of compromise. You don't want to be the kind of person who always has to have things your way. You don't want to be the kind of person who is unwilling to compromise because you think you are always right. That's not a good character trait, especially for human relationships. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2 by way of introduction this morning. Past Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians chapter 2. <coughs> Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, or actually I'm going to read verses 3 through 5. These verses say the following. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The first thing Paul says in this text is, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. That Greek word was used to describe playing politics or manipulating things to get people on your side so you can get your way. It's listed in Galatians 5.20 as a work of the flesh in contrast to the fruit of the Spirit. You might not think selfish ambition is that big of a deal, but there in that passage, God lists it with some very serious sins. When you get an agenda in your mind and you politic to get people on your side to get your way or you manipulate to get your way, that is a grievous sin. Selfish ambition is when you demand your way and are unwilling to compromise where there is room for compromise. So Paul adds verse 4. He says, Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, which is what we all do naturally, but also for the interests of others. This verse is an expansion of the last command in verse 3. It tells us how we can consider one another above our own selves. Basically, what Paul is saying here is this. Don't demand your way. It's imperative that we consider others and look for places to reach a positive compromise. Therefore, there is a positive kind of compromise in life, in situations, in relationships. But there is also a negative or bad kind of compromise. When God told King Saul to destroy all the Amalekites and all their property, King Saul compromised. He destroyed all the people, but spared Agag the king and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. That compromise cost King Saul his throne. 
So there is a good kind of compromise and there is a bad kind of compromise. In this, in this message, we are going to look at some examples of a bad kind of compromise as we consider compromising views of creation. Turn with me, please, to the very first book of God's Word, the very first book of the Bible, and the very first chapter of that book, Genesis chapter 1. (coughs) This chapter is God's own account of His creating and making of the universe, and it actually goes into the fourth verse of chapter 2. Now, why do I say that this is God's own account? Because no other author was present when he did this. Therefore, either God himself wrote this account, or he dictated it to the human author who recorded it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There is no other source of information for this account. So this is God's description of his creating and making work. Now, I am not implying that there are degrees of inspiration in the Scripture. But I am saying that there is something unique about God's own description of what he did. Let's see what he says about what he did. Verse 1, and I will read through the chapter. Follow along with me, please. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, so the evening and the morning were the second day. Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, so the evening and the morning were the fourth day. 
Then God said, Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures, and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply in the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing, and beast of the earth according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. One of the things that amazes you about the Lord Jesus Christ when you read his words in the gospel accounts is how he unreservedly and unashamedly referred to the book of Genesis and other stories in Hebrew scripture that are considered bizarre to the mind of modern man. For example, when he was questioned about divorce in Matthew 19, he responded by saying, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Jesus had no hesitation, quoting from the creation account, to buttress his point. Not only that, it is clear that he believed all the stories of Genesis and all the Old Testament. For example, in Luke 10.18, he referred to Satan's fall from heaven. In Matthew 24.37, he referred to Noah and the ark. In Matthew 10.15, he referred to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. In Luke 17.32, he referred to Lot's wife being turned into a pillar of salt. In Matthew 12.40, he referred to Jonah in the belly of the great fish. And that's just a sampling. Jesus believed the stories of the Old Testament, including the book of Genesis. So here's the point. Don't say you believe in Jesus, but you don't believe in the creation account here in the book of Genesis. Jesus believed all the events recorded in Hebrew Scripture. And he didn't view them as fairy tales or myths or anything like that. He took them as accurate historical accounts. I say that right here at the beginning of the message so that no one will fall into the trap of thinking that it is okay to believe in Jesus and even good to believe in Jesus, 
But you don't need to believe in the rest of the Bible, especially the parts that seem to run contrary to a modern understanding of science. Beloved, understand something. You really don't have the option of embracing such a view. You cannot, I emphasize, you cannot believe in Jesus and the New Testament without also accepting the stories of the Old Testament. The two are indivisibly intertwined. To say it another way, if you throw out the Old Testament as scientifically unsophisticated or antiquated, you have to, to be consistent, you have to throw out Jesus and the New Testament as untrustworthy because Jesus and the other authors of the New Testament repeatedly quoted from the Old Testament stories as historical fact. When Jesus was asked a question, he didn't hesitate to say, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Haven't you read your Bible? Jesus affirmed the creation account in the book of Genesis. He did the same thing in Mark 13, 19. When he was teaching on a future event to come upon the earth, he said this, For in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the creation which God created. How did this universe get here? According to Jesus, God created it. And a part of that work was the making of Adam and Eve. This world did not come about through the process of evolution, nor did the human race. If you believe that it did, please hear me now. If you believe that it did, you cannot believe in Jesus and be consistent. To be consistent, you have to say that either, here are your options, Either Jesus did not know what he was talking about when he affirmed the creation of the universe and of mankind. That's one option. He didn't know. He just, he was ignorant. Or he did know that none of it was true, but he chose to continue the deception. Those are really the only two options you have. The Word of God unequivocally teaches that this universe, including the human race, did not come about as a result of an evolutionary process that took place over millions or billions of years. As we just read here in Genesis 1, God created this universe, including mankind, over a six-day period. That's all the time he took to do what he wanted to accomplish. Thus, there is no reason to believe that our world or universe is millions or billions of years old. God created all the matter and substance of this universe. Then he fashioned it or made it into an orderly universe and world. And he chose to do it over a six-day period. Now, he could have done it in a second. He could have done it in an hour. He could have done it in one day. He could have done it in a month. But he chose to do it over a six-day period for, among other things, purposes related to his design pattern for 24-hour days, seven-day weeks, etc. I would also say this. He could have chosen to do the work of creation over a period of six years or six decades, six millennia. Or six billion years had he purposed to do so. 
But that's not how he chose to do it. And that is why Scripture doesn't present the creation and making account that way. Here in Genesis 1, we have the God-given description of the six days of creation. You see, beloved, you need to understand this, that for us as Christians, this issue really comes down to, not science, it comes down to our view of Bible and our view of Jesus. It's really that basic. It comes down to our view of the Word of God and to our view of the Son of God. But for a variety of reasons, many Christians believe that it is not necessary to hold to a literal six-day creation. Instead, they want to compromise on this issue. They want to come up with a view that doesn't dismiss the creation account in the book of Genesis, but a view that radically alters what is being said here. For the rest of this message, I'm going to mention a few of the most popular compromises. Now understand, these are compromises among Christians. Now we're not talking about in the world out there, among Christians. And briefly, I want to state why they are not good compromises, but rather are bad compromises. So here we go. Compromise number one, theistic evolution. This is the view that God created the universe, but he used evolution to carry out his plan. Those who believe in this view will often say something to the effect that God's Word reveals the fact of creation, but not the method of creation. In other words, according to this view, Genesis 1 is simply telling us that God created all the universe, but scientists have to tell us how it took place, and we all know that most scientists say that it took place through evolution. Therefore, according to this view, the best compromise is to believe in theistic evolution. But there are several problems with this view. The first one is the fact that Genesis 1 not only tells us about the fact of creation, it also tells us about the method of creation. Notice verse 1 again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. These verses describe what took place on the first day of creation. Verse 1 tells us that God began His work by creating the heavens and the earth. The very first step in His work was when He created the substance or matter or elements that He would use to make space and planet earth. So the very first thing that God did was to create out of nothing the fundamental substance of everything we see or the basic elements of the universe, space, matter, and time. In the beginning, that's time. God created out of nothing the heavens. That's space or spaces. And the earth, that's matter. Space, matter, and time now exist. Verse 6 tells us, Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so, and God called the firmament heaven, so the evening and the morning were the second day. These verses continue the description of how God did it, 
Time won't allow us to go into the detail of these verses, but I just want us to see that Scripture not only tells us the fact of creation, it also tells us, at least in some measure, the method of creation, and this description cannot be coordinated with evolution. A second problem with theistic evolution is that God's creation-making account makes it clear that there is no room for transmutations. Just as an example, look at verse 24. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so, and God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Do you think God wants us to get this message with the repetition? According to its kind. That phrase occurs ten times in this creation account. It is God's way of emphasizing the fact that all organisms always have offspring according to their kind. As you know, in the evolutionary theory, over time, organisms give birth to offspring that is of a different kind than the original organism. God wants to make sure that we understand the truth, and that is why he repeats it. Evolution does not line up with the truth of Scripture, nor does it line up with accurate science. Plant and animal categories did not and cannot evolve from another category. A third problem with theistic evolution is its contradiction with statements from God that say he finished his creating and making work in six days. A fundamental premise of the evolutionary theory is that this world was created over a period of billions of years, now watch this, and that it is still being created. That's not what God said in his creation account. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. Chapter 2, verse 3. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Exodus 31.17 and Hebrews 4.3 say the same thing. Creation was a completed event of the past. It is not continuing in the present. A fourth problem with theistic evolution is that it contradicts the second law of thermodynamics or the law of increasing entropy. Now this is a complicated one and it's going to be a simplistic way that I explain it, but it's a valid point, yet time won't allow us to develop it in detail. This law states that all processes manifest a tendency toward decay and disintegration. In other words, left to themselves, things in our world don't get better, they get worse. You don't need a Ph.D. in physics to understand this one. If you have a flower garden and you do nothing with it, it doesn't grow beautiful flowers all neatly arranged, all trimmed back with no weeds. If you have a vegetable garden, you know that if you leave it alone, it doesn't have nice, neat rows, no weeds, and gives you a bumper crop. In your lawn, you know that it doesn't cut itself, it doesn't edge itself, and it doesn't fertilize itself, etc., etc. If you leave it alone, it gets worse. This is a universally accepted law within the scientific community, and yet the theory of evolution teaches that things got better as the process progressed in a positive direction from molecule to man. Theistic evolution is not a good compromise. Compromise number two, progressive creation. This is similar to theistic evolution with one major exception. 
Theistic evolution says God got the whole process started and then he backed off to allow evolution to run its course over billions of years. God wasn't a part of the process at all in theistic evolution except at the beginning. Progressive creation would disagree by saying that there were key times along the way when God stepped back into the process to give evolution some help when it got stuck. God intervened on various occasions to create something new that the evolutionary process could not accomplish unaided. So this view doesn't rule God out of the process altogether because it asserts that God was involved every now and then, occasionally. Some who hold this view suggest that every new species was a special mini-creation introduced by God at the appropriate point in earth history. How should we assess this view of creation? Frankly, about the only advantage this view has over theistic evolution is the name. Because some people recoil, and rightly so, at terms such as theistic evolution or biblical evolution or creative evolution, the term progressive creation doesn't seem as offensive. In reality, however, there's very little difference between the views. The same objections that I mentioned against theistic evolution apply to progressive creation. It is a bad compromise for believers in Scripture and believers in Jesus Christ. Compromise number three, the day-age theory. This is another compromise that seeks to reconcile the biblical account of creation with the geological ages that many scientists have sought to firmly establish in the minds of men and women today. You see, beloved, for evolution to work, it requires a lot of time. I mean a lot of time. Uh, Not just a few thousand years, but millions, even billions of years. If the universe began only several thousand years ago, then evolution is impossible. And evolutionary scientists know this. They acknowledge this. It requires billions of years to have even a semblance of plausibility. So in order to accommodate these millions or billions of years, some have suggested that the six days of God's creation account aren't literal days, but rather are ages. These ages are millions of years long. To support this view, it is noted that the word day in Scripture can be used to refer to a period of time. There's no doubt about that. For example, the phrase, the day of the Lord, clearly refers to a period of time much longer than a 24-hour day. No doubt about it. We even use the English word day in the same way. We say things like, back in the day when there was no such thing as email. Well, the use of the word day in that sentence refers to a long period of time. So, is it possible that the word day in Genesis 1 is referring to long ages of time. Is this a tenable view? No, it is not. What evidence is there that suggests that this universe was created in six literal days? Or maybe a better way to ask this question, what evidence is there that suggests that God himself, in his record, meant six literal days? First of all, 
the Hebrew word yom that is translated day all the way through these two chapters has as its primary meaning a natural day. There's, no, there's really no debate about that. And in its primary meaning, it means a natural day. It can be used figuratively to refer to a period of time, as in the phrase, the day of the Lord. But listen to this. Day, day with numerical adjectives in Hebrew, always refers to a 24-hour period. There are over 200 examples of this in Hebrew Scripture that prove the point. Over 200 examples. Second, the author of Genesis seems to shut us up entirely to the literal interpretation by adding, in the case of every day, the words, and there was evening and there was morning. That is repeated throughout this account. Verse 5 says, uh, as, as, he winds, as the author winds down his ca- account, there was, uh, it says, oh, I'm in chapter 2. No wonder it doesn't read that. Chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, so the evening and the morning were the first day. Verse 8 at the end. So the evening and the morning were the second day. Verse 13. So the evening and the morning were the third day. Verse 19. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Verse 23. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Day. Verse 31 at the end, so the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Each of the days mentioned had just one morning and evening, something that would hardly apply to a long period of time. Furthermore, if there were long periods of time for days, then what would become of the vegetation during those long nights? Thirdly, in Exodus 29 through 11, Israel is commanded to labor six days and to rest on the seventh because it says, Yahweh made heaven and earth in six days and rested on the seventh. Sound exegesis would require that the word day be taken the same way in both instances. The Sabbath day was certainly a natural day. So we can assume that the days of creation were natural days. Otherwise, think of this. The children of Israel could have gotten around the Sabbath requirement by working six weeks and then resting one. If you don't want to take the word day literally, then they could have done it that way. That's not what God wanted. He allowed them to work six natural days, and then he required a Sabbath day. Fourthly, the last three days of creation were certainly ordinary days, for they were determined by the sun in the usual way. Since that was the case, why would the preceding days differ from them in length? For instance, why would it take God take so long for God to separate light and darkness? Billions of years. It wouldn't. So there's no solid biblical reason to doubt that God's creation took place in six natural day, not in six ages that consist of millions of years. Furthermore, a major problem with this view, as well as the previous two, is the fact that death would have been a part of the process long before man was on the scene. And beloved, understand something. That flatly denies what Scripture says in several places, especially Romans 5.12. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin. By the way, another example where Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, took the Genesis account literally. Through one man, sin entered the world. That verse specifically says that death came into the world through the sin of Adam. 
But if the evolutionary theory were true, and the geological ages were true, then understand something. Death happened for millions of years before Adam ever came on the scene. That is an absolute contradiction to what God has said. So the day-age theory is a bad compromise. Compromise number four, the gap theory. This is the view that states there is a large gap of time between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Let me explain this view. This view says, verse 1 tells us about God's original creation. But there is a large time before coming to verse 2, and in this time gap, Satan fell and brought catastrophic results to the planet, which is why verse 2 says the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep. Thus, what you have, according to this view, is basically a recreation in verses 3 and following. Verse 1 is the original creation, according to this view. And then there is a large time gap during which time there were all the events of the geological ages and evolutionary table. By the way, on a personal note, this is a view I held as a teenager, the gap theory, before I really studied these issues out. This is, is a very, very popular view among believers. This view has the same problem as the first three compromises in that death is present long before Adam is created down in verse 27. Not only that, here's a key, but the Hebrew text in verses 1 and 2 does not point to a gap. Let me explain how. In the Hebrew text, this is not true in all of our English translations, in the Hebrew text, there is an and at the beginning of verse 2, which suggests that verses 2 through 5 are a continuation of verse 1, all of which describe what took place on the first day of creation. As we saw earlier when we commented on verse 1, the very first thing that God did was to create out of nothing the fundamental substance of everything we see or, or the basic elements of the universe, space, matter, and time. This matter he called earth, but watch this. It wasn't planet earth yet because that wasn't formed until verse 10. Verse 10 specifically tells us when planet earth came into existence. God did not create planet earth in verse 1. He created the matter with which he was going to form and fashion planet earth. That is why verse 2 says, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. Verse 2 is saying that not because there was a large time gap and Satan fell and there were catastrophic results. It is describing the condition of this God-created matter as black hole matter without atomic form. All the matter is in one deep, formless, liquid mass. Verse 2 is telling us. And then God took this fundamental substance of everything we see, or the basic elements of the universe, space, matter, and time, and He formed our universe. Which is one of the reasons why the author of Genesis is careful in his usage of words such as bara in Hebrew, which is to 
to describe being created out of nothing, and asa, which is to form or to fashion. So the point is this. There is no scientific or scriptural reason to believe that there is a large time gap between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Compromise number five. The framework hypothesis view. This approach to Genesis 1 says that the creation story that we read earlier and commented on from time to time this morning, the creation story is not actual history. It is merely some kind of literary device. Some within this camp say that the creation account is allegorical. Others say it is liturgical. Some say it is poetical. Still others say it is, here's a, a, a phrase they would use, supra-historical. In other words, not actual historical. Supra, it sort of transcends history. It goes beyond. It's not actual history. Yet all are in agreement, whether they say it's allegorical, liturgical, poetical, supra-historical, all are in agreement that this is in no way scientific or historical. As I'm sure you know by now, those who are committed to Scripture as the inspired and errant Word of God, and those who are, consi- uh, who are committed to a proper hermeneutic, that is, a proper interpretation of God's Word, cannot accept this kind of approach to Genesis and its stories. Not only that, detailed analysis has been done on the creation account to show, to demonstrate, to prove that it is not allegory, not poetry, or any other such kind of genre. All you have to do is compare those types of writing in Hebrew Scripture, allegory or poetry or all of those types of things. Compare it with Genesis, and they do not match. This is not poetry. This is not allegory. This is is not any of those things. This is history. It is a narrative account, which means it is a straightforward description of what God said. In addition, the rest of the authors of Scripture throughout the Old and New Testament refer back to Genesis as history, not allegory or poetry. Listen to this. Moses, Hezekiah, Nehemiah, David, Solomon, Isaiah... Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Micah, Zechariah, Paul, the writer of Hebrews, Peter, Stephen, John, and Jesus. It's a pretty good company, isn't it? All referred to the creation account and or the book of Genesis as true history. All of those men. All of those writers of Scripture. So if you reject it as true history, understand you are putting yourself in opposition to Moses, Hezekiah, Nehemiah, David, Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Micah, Zechariah, Paul, the writer of Hebrews, Peter, Stephen, John, and Jesus. If you reject it as true history, you have a major problem on your hands concerning how you are going to view those other men and their inspired writings. Again, you really only have two options. They were completely ignorant. They didn't know what they were talking about. They were uninformed. Or they knew the truth, but continued the deception. Beloved, the point is this. Genesis 1 records for us how God said he created and made this world. It is quite a contrast to theistic evolution, progressive creation, the day-age theory, 
the gap theory, all of which were invented in an attempt to hold on to evolution over millions of years and to try to make it fit within the biblical record. But as you can see for yourself, that can't be done. It doesn't fit. God did not create this world through the means of theistic evolution, progressive creation, the day-age theory, or the gap theory. God could have done it by any one of those ways. We're not talking about what God could have done. God could have done it in any one of those ways or in hundreds of other ways had He chosen to do so. But that's not the way He chose to create. Which is why this account here in Genesis 1 doesn't describe the creation in any of those ways. Beloved, God doesn't stutter when He speaks. He has said what He wanted to say in His creation-making account. And it is our responsibility to continue probing, examining, and investigating this account to seek to understand all that God has said in what may be the deepest and most profound chapter in all the Bible. And again I say in conclusion that this issue for us as believers is not really an issue of science. It is an issue of our view of the Word of God and our view of the Son of God. Because both the Word of God and the Son of God are clear where they stand on this issue. Let's bow together as we close. Father, thank you that you have given us a trustworthy word from you. It speaks accurately. It speaks clearly. It speaks authoritatively. And we would do well to accept it. And not think that our wisdom somehow is greater than your wisdom. That our intelligence is somehow greater than your intelligence but that we would, where we can't understand or comprehend, bow the knee to accept what you have said. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it not only tells us the truth about creation, which is so important, but it also tells us the truth about sin and death and condemnation and judgment and eternal life. It tells us how we can know you through your Son. It tells us how we can know your Son, Jesus, personally. And so in conclusion, I pray for anyone gathered here with us this morning who does not know you as Father, who does not know your Son, Jesus, as Lord and Savior. May they look to your inspired and errant word. May they trust what it says. May they believe what it says about their sin, their own helplessness, their inability to save themselves. And may they turn in repentance, humility, in childlike faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, to embrace him, to believe in him, to submit to him, and to begin following him from this day forward. And we ask all of these things in his name. Amen.